0: Alexa, play the Love Speaks podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Love Speaks podcast for Monday, September 11th, 2023. I hope that you've budgeted six or seven hours for this episode because there's a lot to cover today, so much uh, to go through, and uh, we'll see how much of it we actually do. There's such an interesting, the gospel this week is really a challenging one, and I think that it includes one of the most ignored teachings of Jesus, and is something that no matter what side of the proverbial uh, line you fall on, what, what side of the aisle you sit on, what side of the ecclesial spectrum you fall on. This is one of those teachings that is supremely difficult for everyone, and it's supremely avoided and sometimes ignored or forgotten about completely by a lot of people. And we get ourselves into a lot of trouble because we don't go about things in this way. And when we do go about things in this way, even though it is difficult, I think we all have an experience where we can say, things turned out better because we did what the Lord asked of us, as it often goes. So before we get into that, though, I'd be remiss if I didn't just make this mention of uh, the anniversary today of the attacks in New York City and the World Trade Center on September 11th, uh, 2001. And uh, just encourage all of you to think about where you were on that day uh, when you found out and uh, how the news was broken to you. And to remember that today is a very difficult day for a lot of people in our country who lost people they loved, uh, knew someone there, or for people who have still continuing effects because of uh, the the attacks that day. And we, as a nation, were never the same after that. And the beautiful um, the beautiful movement after that, and so many houses flying American flags, and people really coming together. And now we look at our nation and its vision of itself, the way that other people look at us, um, and we think about our own kind of involvement in it. We're very fragmented and disunified, and it's it's very sad. Uh, living here in Washington, it's been a privilege to be able to go and see the major monuments. And my all-time favorite one, I think this is true for a lot of people, has been the Lincoln Memorial. And on the Lincoln Memorial, on the walls Uh, next to the statue of Abraham Lincoln, there to the left, uh, they have the text of the Gettysburg Address, which I always go back to in these kind of patriotic moments, um, these moments of great import for our country, because I I just, I mean, it's one of the most, you know, it's so short, as you know, but it's, I'm just going to read the last paragraph to you. Lincoln says, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. It's beautiful. We take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, the great task remaining before us. And that's something that I I just... mm. The Civil War, of course, was this time of great division in our country the greatest division ever, a rift uh, in our our national fabric. And it seems now people say we're in another civil war, but it's not being fought with guns and uh, with swords and and battles. It's being fought. It's an intellectual civil war. It's a political civil war. And we are uh, perhaps as divided as we've been uh, in a very long time. Now, it's not a doomsday thing, and, and I'm a whippersnapper in many ways, and so I'm not saying this is the worst it's ever been. Um, St. Augustine has that beautiful line where he says, if, if you think that the past was better than it, than it is now, that's just because you didn't live in the past, <laughs> which I think is, is so true. But at the same time, we see so much division. We see so much strife, and there's a reason for that. The reason for that, it's because we're fighting with a motive – That is something besides a common flourishing. We're fighting for individual flourishing. We're fighting for the flourishing of our own group, of our own idea, and to hell with all the others. That's a generalization, of course, because things are very complicated in the world. The world is an extremely complicated place. And um, to say that all of our ideas are going to fit always on one or another side of an aisle is going to be impossible unless we surrender some forms of free thinking, some forms of, of truth um, to the power of ideology. And I, I just am really thinking about this a lot today uh, and in these days, just because I, I think that we have lost in many ways in the church a sense of what Jesus was really out here doing. That He's not just about judgment for the sake of punishment. He's not just about correction for the sake of power and embarrassment. That Jesus has come to seek and to save what was lost and to bring all of creation back into harmony with his Father. Reconciliation, in other words, is really what Jesus is aiming at. It's not punishment. It's reconciliation. The goal of correction is not punishment, but reconciliation. I can remember when I was teaching moral theology at Chesterton that one of the things I would say on the very first day of class is that um, my, my public enemy number one in teaching moral theology is the idea of moralism, which is we just do what we do because it's what we do, and that's why we do it, but also legalism, right? That there's no at all spirit behind this. Follow the rules and you'll be saved. Okay, well, Well. okay. <laughs> if you want to live that way, then that's one way that you can live. But you're ignoring a lot of the nuance of life. And so you see this division. You hear people saying, well, we need to be walking with others. We need to accompany others. And that's true. Um, And then you have other people saying, well, we need to just teach them the rules and teach them the truth and and the the truth that the doctrine is proposed by the church, by Christ through the church. Yes. Okay. That's also true. Oh, how do we do that? And and I'm always struck in the parish by the number of people, especially elderly people um, who push against some of the teaching of the church. And they say, oh, but the way that that's proposed is not loving. It's not loving. And then the young whippersnappers like me, we get upset and we say, well, you know, the truth is loving and loving is willing the good of the other and all that. But then if you really listen to what these people are saying, a lot of times people who are are coming of age in the middle of the 20th century, if you really listen to their experience, they were never taught that God loved them. They were never taught, Catholics, I mean, were never taught about a personal relationship with Christ or about... uh, his personal, perpetual, passionate uh, love for them. They were taught rules. And if you do this, you'll be saved. I met with a, a guy not that long ago, and he said to me, uh, basically, that, that, that he was taught the reason we pray to saints is because God is too busy for us, that God doesn't have time for us. So we pray to saints, and maybe in the hallway of heaven, the saints can, you know, nag God for a minute for whatever we need but that's their image of the father is that he is too busy for us he's a man at a desk you know he's a ceo with a clipboard or something and that is devastating that's devastating so we can't just dismiss each other in this way that we we find ourselves wanting to do that and i think that that spirit of dismissiveness has reached the very top of the church and that's not just a critique of pope francis um because he's the Holy Father. We love him, of course. Um, and I think some of what he says is incredibly, incredibly beautiful. But I think sometimes uh, there's not enough nuance there, right? And we see this all the time from from leaders of the church who forget that they cannot just say whatever they want. They can't just speak whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, especially in an age of sound bites. Um, but then on the other side, you know, w- we have people who are... are it seems like looking for reasons to condemn the holy father for example or looking for reasons to argue or to dismiss uh, in the name of the defense of, um, of of catholic truth and and i would say that the harshest most unchristlike uh, corrections that i have received are from people who I, I think in their own eyes see themselves as the great arbiters of or the great protectors of Christian orthodoxy, which is the great irony, of course. I was made a mistake and I went to a comment section on Facebook today and uh, had an interesting observation. One person that I follow said that he... Um, I don't think I've heard many homilies on this passage, which is from the Gospel today, If you from yesterday. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Ouch, my friend said. Can someone get a doctrinal development editor to fix that? It's tongue-in-cheek, of course. And then, scrolling down, uh, a cleric, not a priest, wrote... Well, I think Jesus treated Matthew, the tax collector, pretty well. What do you think? And Matthew responded by offering his life. And my friend replied to this comment by saying, The question is, what does Jesus mean when he says to treat them as you would? He doesn't say anything about how he treated a fictional and repentant tax collector in a parable. One might, assuming one isn't looking for loopholes out of a hard saying, think of how Jesus treated tax collectors with whom he dined as sinners in need of repentance, which is how he describes the unrepentant brother here as a sinner in need of repentance. So I think when Jesus himself or Jesus through the church calls us to repent, we should repent lest we wind up excluded. Yikes, stay out of the comments. But um, I love that kind of, that turn of phrase, looking for a loophole out of a hard saying. And we always do that. Because this work of reconciliation is really difficult because it requires us to admit that others are right sometimes and that we're wrong sometimes. And it also requires us to do something which is even more difficult, which is to admit that others have hurt me sometimes, or that maybe I have hurt others sometimes, and that there are legitimate amends that need to be paid sometimes uh, to those in our lives. If you go to entomonline.com, which is an entomology Dictionary tells you the origin of words. I love it. Uh, And you type in reconciliation, you're going to find that reconciliation, a mid-14th century word, means a renewal of friendship after disagreement or enmity, action of reaching accord with an adversary or one estranged, a reestablishing of a relationship. And then it says an act of harmonizing or making consistent. An act of harmonizing or making consistent. The French word for reconciliation, réconciliation, um, but the, the, the better word is rapprochement, rapprochement, which means uh, it's a political term can kind of mean like an establishment of like cordial relations between nations. But rapprochement, you can hear there like a reapproach, so a bringing near or a coming back again, and. A lot of us are living with a lot of adversaries in our lives. A lot of us are living with a lot of adversaries in our lives that we don't want to look at. We don't want to work through. This is why one of the most moving and often kind of turning point moments for those who are in 12-step programs, for example, is the step that requires you to make a list of those with whom you need to make amends and then go and do it because, um, Going to make amends with people, especially those people who you know that you have hurt, or perhaps asking for forgiveness for them, or offering forgiveness to those who have hurt you—that's um, a very, very difficult thing, and we almost always try to find a loophole out of it. And I would say, in the situations in my life where there has been true dysfunction, it's it's rooted a hundred percent in the time, of the time, in the fact that people cannot speak the truth to each other out of fear. Out of fear. What? Fear of the other person exploding? Fear of the other. And maybe it's a legitimate fear. I'm not saying it's always bad, but there's a great fear there. But remember that one difficult conversation could save you years of dysfunction. And it's not an accident or a mistake that Jesus repeats in this passage, now two chapters later, what he told Peter and the disciples Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing is more than some abstract ecclesial function, and a lot of us are living with great bindings in our hearts. A lot of us are living with bounded up hearts, bounded up minds, bounded up relationships, because for whatever reason, whether it's fear, whether it's trauma, whether it's, and these are valid things, not saying they're not valid, but um, whatever we're living with these things because we cannot face whatever it is that we need to face. So we look for loopholes out of hard sayings. We look for other ways to go about things. When I was doing discipline at Chesterton, I have to say that that was one of the great privileges of my entire life was to be able to oversee discipline in a high school. Um, Because, the, the culture at Chesterton, and some listening to this are are going to think that this is a a kind of veiled criticism of individuals, and I promise you it's not. It's a veiled criticism, and it's, it's not a veiled criticism, and people that have been around know exactly what I think about this, and I've not been shy about it. But there's a culture that had arisen there through no fault of an individual, I don't think, but... Where and this is so true in general, where we equate our mistakes with sins. And so uniform violations were treated almost on the level of being sinful, or that your your skirt being too short or your hair being unkempt was was attacked in a way that that you were a, a deeply unvirtuous person, which of course is not true. And when I left Chesterton over the summer, one of the things that a parent said to me uh, that really surprised me that they said really had made perhaps the greatest impact on them that year was at the parent meeting when I explained that my whole vision of discipline is built on the fact that not every mistake is a sin. Not every human error that you make is a sin. And so we can't be moralizing every single thing that happens to us or between us Just because you get corrected, that doesn't mean that you're guilty of sin before God. And we shouldn't raise to the level of sin before God, things that not even God is raising to the level of sin before God. But at the same time, to be able to establish a genuine rapport with students, to be able to establish a genuine relationship of cordiality and trust with them, which didn't exist there, so that they could see, actually, that the correction was coming from a place of love, of willing their good, and not just out of power. Too many people exercise the authority given to them because it feels good to have power. Too many people exercise the the position that they've been given because it feels good to have power. And it's not about the others. It's not about the group. It's about some kind of of. Of need being filled. They're getting their jollies from holding it over others. But in doing so, they rejoice when the very words of Jesus are avoided. So the gospel from yesterday, Jesus said to his disciples, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, amen, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And through the words of the Holy Gospel, may our sins be wiped away. Jesus said to his disciples, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. When was last time you did that? Where you went to your brother, to your sister, and you told them their fault between you and them alone. That you didn't go to your friend first and spill the tea. That you didn't go uh, to their friends, or you didn't rant about it and rave about it. That you didn't skip that step and go right to their boss or to their superior, but you went to them and you dealt with it between you and them alone. One difficult conversation could save you years of dysfunction. And as I just reflect on this, I recognize that a lot of the dysfunction that has come in my own life professionally and personally has come because I'm afraid to do that. What if they don't like me or what if they don't receive it well or what if it has negative consequences for me? But all I have to offer you is the truth. All I have to offer you is the truth. The writer Anne Lamott, she says, whatever happens to you is yours and you get to talk about it. I love that. Whatever happens to you is yours and you get to talk about it. So you have to own, we have to own what's happened to us. And if someone has hurt us or confused us, then we have every right to go to that person. But we don't have a right to go to other people and destroy the reputation. We don't have a right to go and post about it or to spill the tea about it to all of our friends. We don't have that right. We go to the person and we talk to them about it. And this is, is it true in every case? Personally? Yeah, I think it is. Now, professionally, there might be things that need to happen. There might be reports that need to be, I mean, depending what it is, right? But at the same time, in our life, in your life, not, I mean, pretty much nothing, with very few exceptions, obviously, is going to be raised to this level. So we're looking for a loophole out of this hard saying. Most of your interpersonal conflict is applicable to this passage today. And a lot of the way we deal with our interpersonal conflict is that we just avoid this completely because it feels good to go right to someone's boss or it feels good to go right to, to, our friends, and have them affirm how right we were or whatever. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Because what's the effect of ignoring that, of not doing that? You're binding something on earth, which will be bound in heaven. What's the effect of overreacting when a student makes a mistake? of treating them like they're a failure, or of disciplining them for something and then remembering it all year long, reminding them of it over and over again, holding it over their head. You're binding something on earth, which in their heart will be bound for a long time. It's a great risk that we take when we correct each other, but if we have the truth to offer, then that's really going to be worth it always. This is one of the most ignored passages of all of scripture, and it really it really bothers me, to be honest with you. It bothers me that I ignore it. It bothers me that people have ignored it in my life, uh, in relation to me. It bothers me that people, when I was, you know, at Chesterton or in the parish, people would come to me, and they would they would come to me as uh, the the authority, and they had not done these other steps. And it reached a point, to be honest with you, at school sometimes that I would. Say to people, you know, if you haven't gone, for example, someone coming and saying, oh, the teacher did this and said this. And I said, I would always say, well, what did the teacher say when you talked to them about it? Well, I haven't talked to them. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm not going to talk to you respectfully. I'm not going to talk to you until you, you have that conversation with them. And if you want me to help you facilitate that, I'd be happy to. But I'm not going to engage it until you do your part. And the similar thing would be if uh, someone came to me and said, hey, um, a parent reached out to me and said this, that, and the other thing that they're upset about. I would say, even to people who are my superiors, I would say, well, unfortunately, if they're not going to come to me with it, and their concern is with something that I have said or done, and they're not going to come to me with it, then respectfully, their concerns do not exist in my mind. Because I can't carry that. You know, I can't carry that around. I can't bear all the weight of things that haven't even been brought to me in real life. It's not possible, and any leader knows that. This is the heart of the church's teaching on subsidiarity and solidarity. We belong to each other, you guys. We belong to each other. We have to be in this together, because if we're not in this together, then we're, we're going to be apart. If you're not with me, you're against me, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. We are belonging to each other. God has given us to each other and God in his son wills that we are one as he is one. And that is just the heart really of what we have to be about. We have to be better ambassadors of this in the world today. There's a lot of examples out there just coming up, uh, this week. Um, today, I guess yesterday, um, in Poland, um, the Vatican beatified a Polish family, the Ulma family, a family of nine. It's the first time ever that an entire family has been beatified together. It's a married couple and their children. Uh, The Ulma family was hiding Jews in their home in 1944 in Poland, World War II, and someone reported them for this, and they were uh, murdered. The entire family was murdered along with all the Jews who were living with them uh, after they were betrayed by someone in their town. And the Olma family were very devout Catholics and all of their uh, children, they had um, an unborn child in the womb as well, uh, they were all killed. And today, yesterday, they were beatified uh, in Poland um, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. The church recognizing the value of that kind of selfless act, the selfless act not only of laying their life down, but the selfless act that led them there, which was uh, desiring to show hospitality and mercy and care um, to people who were in these, this un- unthinkable situation, and they shared that great difficulty with them. Maybe you heard that last Thursday night in Nigeria, a rectory was broken into by some insurgents. They were trying to kidnap the pastor of a parish, and they could not get in um, to the the place where the the priest was. And so they set the house on fire, and there were two priests who were able to get out. But a young seminarian, I think he was 25 years old perhaps, uh, died in the fire. He died in the fire. Uh, Naaman Danlami, we have to remember his name. He had given himself to the church and to the Lord, and he died for that. Whether they'll declare him a a martyr, I, I don't know. But the bishop of this diocese in Nigeria, he released a statement on Friday. And he said, let us prove to our enemies with all their arsenals that they have failed again. Let everyone hear our songs of praise and thanksgivings. To face the conflict, to deal with the conflict, my goodness. You look at these um, schools that have been uh, so sadly victimized in, uh, with shootings, places that have been uh, terrorized. We think of our own nation with September 11th, and we have become a bitter nation. We have become a very bitter place to be. And it's very, very hard to see that happen for a lot of us. And I've said this so many times, and I'll just say it again that if we don't think that the way we treat our families, and the way we treat our friends, and the way we treat our coworkers, and the people that we don't even know, if we think that that's unimportant in relationship to the health and fabric of our society, then we really have to take a step back and think again. Mother Teresa was so famous for saying, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Because that's how the world will change. So I just want to encourage each of you to think about that list of amends you might be called to make. And who might you need to offer forgiveness for hurting you? And who might you need to ask for forgiveness? Who might you need um, to approach in humility And truth and say, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong and I know it was hurtful. Because the whole mission here is not punishment. And if you don't think that you can do this from a place where revenge is not on the table, where punishment is not on the table, where bitterness is not on the table, if you can't approach this from the standpoint of reconciliation, two who once were far are now being brought near. And that doesn't mean you have to be best friends. It doesn't mean you have to hang out. It doesn't mean you have to move in together. It doesn't mean you have to open up a joint bank account. (laughs) But it means that finally, perhaps, two people who once were at enmity could live in peace. And that peace might mean a rekindling of the relationship, or the peace might mean a going separate ways. But peace, in this case, will always be a loosening of the bonds of our hearts, which is what Christ has come to do, to seek and to save what was lost, and to loosen the bonds uh, of our hearts, which we hold on to for dear life when we choose to ignore how he tells us to go about conflict resolution. We have to pray for each other that this can be the kind of church that we can have, that these can be the kinds of families that we can have, that these can be the kinds of friendships that we can have. Because as long as we go on anonymously accusing each other or Going over each other's heads or just ignoring the conflict and stuffing it down. We participate in what Jesus told us that we are binding on earth things that will be bound in heaven, when in fact he has come to loose, to loose, to loose, to loose. Psalm 116 You have loosened my bonds. You've set me free. And I praise you. I I lift up the cup of salvation and I call on your name because you have loosened my bonds. So beautiful. He's come to set us free from slavery to sin and to death, and he's come to set us free so that we can live a really peaceful life. I mean, that's, that's what's at stake here. So let's pray for each other in this. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for the courage to be like this family in Poland, to be like this seminarian in Nigeria, to just stand at our posts and to live our vocations and to do it well, and to remember as Gregory Allen Isakov so beautifully sings, that if it weren't for second chances, we would all be alone. If it weren't for second chances, we would all be alone. So we thank God for the second and third and 50,000th and seventh chance that he has given to us and that we might be able to extend the same kind of subsidiarity, solidarity, mercy, care, hospitality, and generosity to each other in this way. And I wish you all a very pleasant week. Thanks, by the way, to those of you who responded to my need for tips about how to read Jonathan Swift. My favorite one, which in fact I've taken uh, into account the most, is simply don't. (laughs) Don't read Jonathan Swift's Gulliver Travels because it's weird. So I've put it back on the shelf for now. Hope you're all doing well. Let's pray for each other. God bless you. Bye-bye.